This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about Jesus purchased our freedom by dying on the cross, right? He purchased our freedom. In fact, when he came and he was on the earth, just a few days perhaps before he went to the cross, he stopped in Jerusalem to pray to God and he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Then Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus says, look, the time has come, Father, for me to come on back home. Um, I came to this planet with a job to do. I had work. And he says in this prayer, I accomplished my work. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, you know, he says, it is finished. I have finished my work. So even Jesus had work. And his work was to give us salvation, to give us freedom. And he accomplished his work. His work gives us freedom, not our work. Someone say amen. But you might be wondering, but what is our work? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with this freedom anyway? What does this freedom do for me? How many of you have been wondering that question? We've been wondering that question, what is my work? What is the point of all this freedom? What am I supposed to do with it? Well, we do have work, before we get to that, and we're going we're gonna to see it today, you might be excited, um, I want to share a verse from 1 Corinthians, a verse from the Apostle Paul. He said this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. So Paul, he always does this. You might track this in, in his letters. He always spends a lot of time and a lot of energy laying down a really strong, secure foundation before he moves into telling you what your responsibility is. So first he says, this is doctrine. This is theology. Now that you have theology, how then therefore shall we live is, is, is sort of what he's saying here. So he says, I, like a master builder, have laid this foundation and others build upon it. You and I are going to build upon that foundation, and that foundation is Jesus. Paul goes on in that letter to say, some men build with wood, hay, and stubble. Other men build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And in the end, the last day, the work of every man will be determined by fire, will be tested by fire. And of course, wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn. Gold, silver, and precious stones is not going to burn. And so today, we're going to get into chapter 5. Uh, and many of you are probably really excited about this, because for the past 10 weeks, 
We have done nothing but fought for freedom, separated the law and grace, and said the law has nothing to do with our salvation. The law is dead. It's something that we walk upon. It's not over us, pushing down on us. And today we're going to get to what you might say is more practical things. What am I supposed to do? What is my work? But before we can see that work, Paul wants to show us, I've laid the foundation, which is grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, and then on top of that, we can start to build. Are you ready to see what your job is, what your responsibility is, what your work is? Okay, let me show you. Here's what we're going to see in these 15 verses. Paul's going to make a contrast, and the contrast is going to be two paths, or two roads, or two ways, you can say. One way is the way of law. That's wood, hay, and stubble. It will burn. The other way is the way of love. And as you know, love endures all things. Love conquers all. Love will last forever. Gold, precious rubies. And so we're going to contrast these two ways. Let's see which way you walk or should walk. Galatians 5. Let's just jump in. Verse 1. Paul opens this chapter by saying this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That is an amazing line. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. One scholar says this is the key verse, the most important verse in the entire book. It says it all right there. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Someone might ask, what's the purpose of all this freedom anyway? Why do we need freedom? Why do we need to spend all this time talking about freedom? Why do we need to fight for freedom? Because Jesus died so you can be free. He wants you to be free. That's why it's important. It is for freedom that Jesus has set you free. So if Jesus wants you free, then you are free, right? You should be free. It's actually really strong in Greek. Timothy Keller says it's stronger in Greek than it is in English. Both the noun and the verb are the word freedom. So it reads, it is for freedom that we have been given freedom. (laughs) Freedom is both the means and the end of the Christian life. Everything about the Christian gospel is freedom. And you've seen that in the past 10 weeks. You're going to see it a little bit more tonight. He goes on to say this, stand firm, therefore. So if Jesus died so that you could have freedom, if it is for freedom that you have been set free, then we have to stand firm on that foundation. The foundation that Paul's been laying is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, gospel. This is how we get freedom from the law and freedom from sin and freedom from the need to please. Let's stand firm on this foundation. That's kind of a responsibility to stand firm there. That word stand firm in Greek is a military term. We see it all the time in the Bible. Um, Paul will say things like stand firm, keep alert, keep watch, be ready in and out of season for an attack, always be fighting for this freedom. Stand together, brotherhood in arms to defend the gospel of freedom. Why? Why is Paul using military words? Because freedom, you know this, everyone in this country knows this, freedom has to be fought for, doesn't it? And it has to be defended because it is easy, very easy to have your freedom taken from you, isn't it? Freedom has to be fought for. And then he goes on and says this, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the opposite of standing firm on freedom is to submit again to the law. Submit again to the legalism of the law. That's the way Paul refers to the law. He calls it a yoke of slavery. And I want you to notice the word again. You see that? 
So you've been set free. I've built this foundation. You stand firm on this foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Without Christ, you're nothing. Without Christ, it all falls apart. Stand firm, because if you don't stand firm, you will be submitting again to the law, submitting again again to legalism. Don't you think it's interesting that we said, this is chapter 5, Paul's going to start shifting, pivoting, and telling us what our responsibility is and what we get to do as part of our work. How do we build on that foundation? But yet, he is still saying the same stuff he's been saying for the past four chapters, right? We already heard all this before, haven't we? It is for freedom that you've been set free. Stand firm. Don't submit to slavery. So it's like he can't move on. (laughs) So he's still beating the same horse, silly, because he's afraid to move on, because he wants to say, listen, listen. Okay, we're gonna move before we move on, before I move on to telling you what you need to do, don't forget freedom. Stand firm on freedom. Okay, now I'm gonna tell you what to do. Let's see if maybe he'll tell us what to do in, in verse two. Look, I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Okay, nope, he's not gonna go there yet. <laughs> Still not ready to tell us what our work is. Darn. <laughs> I have to have to wait. Don't look ahead, Jim. I know you're gonna look ahead. Don't look ahead. <laughs> First, let's look at this verse. He starts off by saying, Look, colon, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this. If you watch the talking heads on TV, you know what I'm talking about, like Fox News and CNN and the other ones, um, they got those guys talking, and, and, they, and they always start every sentence with, listen, you, you know what I'm talking about, have you ever seen this? Bill O'Reilly, whatever, he's always said, listen, Obamacare is not going to work, listen, you're never going to see that money, listen, the government's going, you know, crazy, <laughs> And I don't know why, I don't know why, who started that trend, but everyone does it. Everyone starts every sentence with the word, listen. It's like they believe that what they're about to say is going to be a home run, is going to shut everyone else down. Listen, Obamacare, it's just not going to work. Listen, have you noticed this or is it just me? Go home, watch TV tonight, you'll notice it, and then it will drive you crazy and you'll stop watching TV like I did. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, look. Got a semicolon there. Look, I got something to say. Look, this is going to be a home run. Look, I, Paul, am saying this to you. That'd be like me. Look, I, Mike, on this eighth day of March of the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, do declare before you all. I do declare, says Michael Scott, right? I do declare. This is what Paul is saying here. I, Paul, declare. I say to you that if you accept circumcision... Now, remember, the Galatians are Christian, Gentiles, non-Jews who become Christians. These legalists have come in and said, yes, you are saved by Jesus, but you need to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament. Paul's saying, look, I do declare, if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you get snipped, then you don't need Jesus because you're under the law. You're of the way of the law. Interesting, isn't it? Again, Paul doesn't seem to want to get to what we're supposed to do. He still wants to remind us, look, I'm telling you, don't do it. And then, have you ever asked yourself, as I've asked myself, why is he making such a big deal about circumcision? Just get circumcised and we can all get along, right? We'll all just be, just let them get circumcised and then it's no big deal. It's it's clean. Let's keep going. Let's see if he is going to finally give us something to do in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Okay, he's still not ready to give us any coaching yet. He's still ranting. Now he's cursing. Did you notice? He's swearing. 
I testify. Which is another word of saying, I swear. I swear on everything holy and good and pure. That. Again. <laughs> again, I'm swearing again. If anyone accepts circumcision, he's obligated to the whole law. I swear to you. And it's, it's almost like he's saying, before I built the foundation, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And before I tell you how to start to build on that, it's almost like he's trepidatious about it. <sighs> Listen to me. I swear to you, if what I'm about to tell you pushes you into a legalistic camp, your Christ is nothing to you. Remember, he's the foundation that we're building on. Don't build on another foundation. And he, he's cursing and he's mad. And you might remember he opened this letter with cursing. He said, y'all can go to hell if you, if you believe that. He's cursing now. He's going to keep doing that. And when he gets to the end of the chapter, he's going to say, look at what big letters I use when I write the stinking letter to you because freedom is extremely important. We need to be preaching and teaching and, and, and proclaiming the good news of gospel freedom. Paul's fighting for it here. In fact, he's going to keep ranting, just to be honest with you. I know you're eager to find out, where's my work? What am I supposed to do? So if I could just jump from verse 3 and skip just so I can get ahead of this. I want to show you what Paul's got on his chest in verses 7 through 12. Let's just chunk that out. Listen to what he says. He's so mad. This is what happens when you become an enemy of the freedom of the gospel. He says, you, Galatians, you were running well. In fact, when Paul came and preached the gospel to them, they were doing well. They, they, how were they running well? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I want you to hear that. Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Normally, when we hear that, we immediately think, I need to obey. I need to try harder and do better and be gooder. 10%. You know what I mean? But that's not what he's talking about here. When I first preached the good news, grace alone gospel to you, you were obeying the gospel. You were trusting in Jesus. But then these legalists came in and said, but you need to cut yourself and you need to follow these traditions. And he goes on to say, this persuasion that's come in is not from God who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what that means is, when I asked earlier, why is Paul making such a big deal about circumcision? Because if you let one legalistic thing in your church, it's going to ruin the whole batch. Do you know what I'm talking about? A little yeast, a little leaven, a little yeast inside. If you get too much of it in there, a little bit too much could ruin the whole batch. You've got to throw the whole stuff away. And so Paul's saying, you can't let one inkling of legalism in this thing because it ruins. That's why I'm making a big deal about this. Listen to this. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take the other side. You'll take no other view. You'll, you'll, you'll come back to grace alone. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. He's ticked. Whoever this guy is coming in, telling you you've got to do X, Y, and Z, I'm confident that you're going to land back on grace alone, and this guy is going to, he's going to take the penalty, whoever this guy is. And then he says this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The Bible's not boring. You know, you just have to read it. <laughs> Look, did you hear what he says here? Um, Paul's essentially saying here, if those guys who are trying to put a yoke of slavery on my free Christian brothers, they're going to get punished. Paul's pretty harsh. Matter of fact, he never gets this harsh about any other thing. Someone could get drunk at the Lord's table. Someone could be, what, you know, sleeping with his father's wife. This, these things happen in the Bible, and he gets mad about it, but he never says, 
emasculate yourself, go to hell. He never says that. He says it about legalists. Makes me think of it. Didn't Jesus do the same thing? Prostitutes, tax collectors, scribes who come to him saying, how can I get to heaven? He's always pretty gentle with them, a little harsh, a little gentle. But a Pharisee comes to him, it's harsh, very harsh. And then he essentially says, those guys who want you to cut yourself for circumcision, I just wish they'd cut their whole thing off. <laughs> you see how mad he is about this? All right, let's go back to verse 4. I skipped it, but um, the reason why I skipped it is because I wanted to see all this rant. He said, he'll show you how mad he is. But let's go back now and, and look at this one last verse, and then I want to discuss this verse. I wanted to save this verse for our discussion. And Paul has just said, I'm, I'm telling you, I swear to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ has no value to you, and you have to obey all of the law. And then he says this, you will be severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen from grace. If you follow legalism, follow the law, you will be severed, which means cut off from Christ. And what happens if you're cut off from Christ? I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to know. Bad things, I'm sure. And he adds, you've fallen from grace. You've heard that statement before, fallen from grace? He's fallen been fallen from grace. So here's a question I want to know is, what does that mean? I mean, what does that look like? What does it mean to have fallen from grace? What do you think? And how does one fall from grace? Are we in danger of falling from grace? Is your next door neighbor, the guy sitting next to you? <laughs> Maybe, no, not me, but this guy probably. <laughs> So here's the discussion question. I know I haven't given you a lot of information yet, but I would like to know what you think. What do you think it means to have fallen from grace? Or how does one fall from grace? Let's talk about that for a couple minutes and I have a second. Well, the reason why I asked this question is because it's a very controversial verse, as you could probably pick up on. Um, people will argue, does this mean we could lose our salvation? What, they were once a part of grace, and then they've fallen, and they've been severed from Christ? What does that mean? In fact, if you listen to Martin Luther, he almost makes it sound like that. Listen, here's a few quotes from Luther. He says, the words, ye are fallen from grace, must not be taken lightly. They are important. To fall from grace means to lose the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness, liberty, and life which Jesus has merited for us by his death and resurrection. If you fall from grace, then you fall from all that Christ has done. That's what Luther saying here, he goes on, that means you are no longer in the kingdom or in a condition of grace. When a, I like this illustration. When a person is on board a ship and he falls into the sea and is drowned, it makes no difference from which end or side of the ship he falls into the water. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if he falls off the left side, you know, the port side or the aft side. It doesn't matter. Once he's dead, no one's talking about what side did he fall off of. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if you fall from grace, as in you once were um, hurting, hearing about the grace of Christ and then you fell into legalism, or if you fell because you were always fallen, you know, from, from Adam. It doesn't matter. You've, you're fallen. It's what, all that matters is the end game here. Those who fall from grace perish no matter how they got about it. Those who seek to be justified by the law are fallen from grace and are in grave danger of eternal death. Pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Again, it starts to sound like, does Luther believe that if you become a legalist, you lose your salvation? Well, I hope not because we all fall into that category at some time in our life, right? We all get legalistic about something. 
Paul also said this. I mean, Luther said this. Paul has to say in this verse, in accordance with Christ's own teaching, was he that believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, but he that does not believe in the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God. So Jesus is simple too. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. You get life. You don't. You don't get life. So the reason why I think this is so controversial is because what naturally comes to mind when we hear this verse? When we hear this verse, we naturally think to ourselves of someone who's in some really heinous, grave sin, right? He's fallen from grace. It's someone who just kind of, you know, went off the deep end. He's still getting drunk every night. He's still sleeping around. You know what I mean? So he's fallen from grace. He wants, you know, he wants, I've known people in my life, come to church, praising God. They're just awesome people. And then you see this lifestyle and you think, this verse must apply to them. They've fallen from grace. Isn't that what we normally think? Someone say yes. Thank you. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, is he? He's not talking about moralism. He's not talking about being gooder. He's talking about legalism. (laughs) And so Paul doesn't say bad morals cause us to fall from grace. What Paul is saying is bad theology causes us to fall from grace. Being legalistic. Here's what Chavigian says. Fallen from grace, quote unquote, is not defined in terms of lawlessness and immorality as we normally think. Instead, it is defined in terms of legalism. So Paul's saying, if you get circumcised, you've been severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. Now, I don't believe that we could lose our salvation. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an evangelical. I do not believe we can lose our salvation. So what does this mean? Well, it means it's these people who've chosen the path, the way of law. And that way is wood, hay, and stubble. It will burn, and it's not going to last. And it's not under grace. It's under law. And Paul's already said, if you want to go that way, that's fine. But you have to to complete all of the law. You have to complete all of the law. And if you can't do that, then... And by the way, you can't do that because there's only one way to heaven, and that's through grace. (laughs) Timothy Keller clears it up for us. The Apostle John says, of anyone who turns their back on the faith permanently, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So they, they, they started going down this legalistic path. They obviously didn't understand the gospel, didn't get grace. His point is that true Christians are saved by grace. Listen to what Keller says. And show, I love that, and have evidence of their Christianity, evidence of their faith, you would think he's going to say by being good, living a better moral life, cleaning up. That's what I've heard preached a lot, right? Evidence of your faith equals I look like Mr. Joe Christian, right? That's not what Keller says. They've been true Christians are saved by grace, and they show the evidence that they are Christians by continuing to trust in grace. Equally, those who fall away from grace never really trusted in it. Do you see now why a little leaven ruins the whole lump? You get a little bit of legalism in the church, little, just even a little bit, and it can destroy you. It can destroy others. The pastor has to make sure no, no one crosses the freedom barrier. You know what I mean? The elders have to make sure no one crosses the freedom barrier because legalism is dangerous. All right, so you guys are still wanting to know, what's my works? 
feel like you're preaching the same sermon for the 10th week in a row. And I want you to know that Paul has never said anything but what he's been saying. So I have not said anything but what he's saying. So I'm, I'm happy to tell you that he is going to make a turn now and he is going to give us some works. So here's the moment you've been waiting for. Let's shift over to the road, the path, the way of love. Let's see what it looks like. Verse 5. Galatians, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is, this is huge. He says, for through the spirit that we have and by our faith. So remember, it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So the faith that we have makes us saved. Spirit comes inside of us and gives us power. And what does that power enable us to do? To try harder and be gooder and be better. Amen? Once you get the Holy Spirit in you, it enables you to actually try harder and then be harder. I mean, you know, make it work, right? Be good, try to be gooder, and then be gooder. That's not what he says, is it? He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we have the Spirit in us, we wait. That's what, that's what we do. If Karen was here, I would say, Karen, you're looking for some work? Here's your work. You wait. I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. <laughs> it's the worst work you could give me. <laughs> wait. Through the Spirit, the Spirit's going to give us power to wait. Our faith enables us to have the Spirit, which enables us to wait, eagerly wait. And what are we waiting for? The hope of righteousness. I want you to see this. We're waiting for a future hope. We've got this thing out there. We're hoping for it. And what is it? It's righteousness. So the Spirit inside of us gives us strength to wait, eagerly waiting, for righteousness. You know what that means? It means we don't have it yet. We don't have righteousness yet. You can raise your hand if you think you do, and we will all tell you why you don't, okay? <laughs> if you've been a Christian or been around Christians long enough, you will know that we are not righteous. Self-righteous maybe, but not righteous. And so why? Because that's a future thing, and we hope for it. We wait for it. What does waiting mean? It means trying harder, doing better, and being gooder? No, it means waiting. Remember, Abraham couldn't wait. Remember that? Father Abraham had a promise, future hope of a son and children, and he couldn't wait, and so he reverse-engineered God's promise and figured it out himself and had a child through Hagar, and that was bad news. So Paul is saying here, you want some work? Here's your work. Wait. Don't Try to reverse engineer righteousness. Wait until God gives it to you. You see that? Don't try to say, do this, 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 and this, and then you will be a Christian. Then you will be saved. Then you will have fruit. Then you'll be righteous. No, no, no. Wait. <laughs> Jesus will do that too in your life. Isn't that amazing? How come that doesn't get preached? This may not look like a very important verse to you. You may thought it was a filler. Can we move on to verse six now? But it is extremely important. Another reason why it's important is this word hope, and I have to unpack this, because the word hope in Greek is the opposite of the word hope in English. So here's what hope means in English. In English, we say something like, is it going to be warm tomorrow? I hope so. Which, by the way we use it, defines it, right? Now you know what hope means. It means, I don't know. <laughs> In fact, I would even so go, for, go so far as to say 
that the way we use the word is negative in nature. Is it going to be warm tomorrow? Probably not, but I hope so. I wish. Isn't that how we use the word hope? That's English for hope. Bible for hope, Greek for hope, is the complete opposite. Hope is assurance. It is confidence. It is the promise that God made, and he cannot lie, and so it will happen. In fact, scholars will tell you, hope is the word faith in the future tense. It's the same word. It's just a future tense of that word. What is faith? Faith is being sure of that which is unseen. That's what Hebrews tells us. So faith is being confident of that which is unseen. What is hope? Being confident of that which is future and yet not, un- not seen. <laughs> so it's a big difference. What Paul is saying here is, you have faith? Good. Now wait for the confident, secure hope that you do already possess, but you've not received it yet. You will receive it. It's in your, it's your inheritance. It's yours. Just not yet. You wait. Timothy Keller says, Paul says that we simply await this righteousness. We don't work or strive for it. We know it is coming. It's on its way. So we can wait, eagerly even, but not anxiously. Why is it that I've never heard sermons on this before? Why is it that the normally what I hear is 10 steps to how you can have your best life now? Seven reasons how you can have a better marriage. Six, six reasons how you can give more money to the church. Why do I not hear You're going to be made righteous. Let's praise God for that. And right now, part of our waiting is worshiping. Good stuff, isn't it? So your first work, wait. Okay, there's more. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Religion doesn't count. That's what Paul's saying. Whether you're circumcised, not circumcised, Baptized, not baptized, speak in tongues, don't speak in tongues. Read the NIV or read the KSV or read the King JV. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Counts for nothing. But this is what counts. You ready? You're ready for this, aren't you, Deanne? This is what you've been waiting for all 10 weeks. You've been waiting for this. Here it comes. Here's what counts. Faith working through love. There's your work. You want work? Here it is. Don't get circumcised. Don't try harder. Let that faith that saved you alone work through you to love. Love somebody. Love people. Love your neighbor. That's what this freedom is for. You've been set free with this faith and this gospel that you have, that you've been given. Now you've been free to love. Faith is working in you. Your faith that saved you is also going to work in you to love. Part of the fruit that the faith is moving inside of you, even though your righteousness is future, is today it's working in you to love. Hmm. Verse 13, he's going to elaborate on what that looks like. We already read verses 7 through 12, so I'm going to jump into verse 13. He says, for you were called to freedom. He doesn't want us to forget. I'm telling you what to do. I'm giving you some works to do, but don't forget It's freedom. You've been called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there it is. Faith working in love, through love serve one another. That's our work. Then he adds this line, which I think is important. We've got to highlight it. You've been called for freedom. You've been set free from the law. 
set free from sin, only don't allow your freedom to be taken advantage of. Don't use the freedom that Jesus gave you as an opportunity or a license to sin. Yes, you're free. Of course you're free. And you're free to sin. But don't. Use your license as an opportunity to sin. Why? Well, because that's not freedom. It's interesting to me. Remember when I started preaching this series, and for the past 10 weeks, I've probably said the same thing every week, and that is, anytime you preach the gospel in its clearest, most simplest terms, Jesus died for you, you believe in him, call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. It's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You add nothing to Jesus. Anytime you preach like that, someone is always going to say, yeah, but. But, right? Put on the brakes, hold back, slow back. Paul hasn't done that in four whole chapters, not once, and neither have I as we've been going through this series, but now he's doing it. Do you see it? But don't let that freedom be an excuse to sin. Moving on. Can I just show you that? One little line. It's not even a whole verse. It's a half of a verse. One half of a verse. He says, don't be a licentious person, which meaning you have license to sin. We in the church today spend most of our time trying to get people not to sin. And then when we hear messages like this, we think, oh, if you preach that message, they're going to go use it as a license to sin. We have to control them. We have to give them something to do, you know, good works, you know, do good works and don't sin. But Paul, one little line, you've been set free, but you know what? Don't let your freedom be an excuse to sin. Moving right along. <laughs> Why is it that we spend more, we spend all of our time on that half of a verse? Paul spent five whole chapters so far telling us, don't go into legalism. I just think it's flabbergasting. I really do. Anyone else with me? Can someone say amen? Well, fine. Martin Luther, Satan likes to turn this liberty, which Christ has gotten for us, into licentiousness. Again, a license to sin. And the flesh, our bodies, always reason, if we are without the law, we may as well indulge ourselves. Amen. <laughs> right? If we have no law, let's just go party. We're going to have a good time tonight. And we say, why do good? Why give alms? Why suffer evil? In other words, why, why have suffering when there is no law to force us to do good? Here's what I want to say. Even though that is the natural reasoning of our flesh, and we've been talking about this in this series every, almost every week, what, what, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. Even though that's the natural reasoning of our flesh, can I say it also is a contradiction? If you think about it, license contradicts freedom and it contradicts love. Let me, let me explain why. If I say, oh, I'm free, I can do what I want, and then I go into sin, I drink too much, I sleep around, I'm, I'm greedy, is that freedom? The answer is no. Is that freedom? No, thank you. It's not. You, you've just traded one slavery for another slavery. Now you're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to your own desires. And so, so it's not freedom, it's slavery. Also, it contradicts love, because if you're doing all those things, living in sin, caring nothing about yourself, your freedom is, is for you to just please yourself with all the indulgences of your flesh. Do you love? No, you don't care about anyone but yourself. In fact, you're taking advantage of people so you can get more, taking advantage of people so you can have more fun. So it's not, it's not, it contradicts freedom and it contradicts love. Here's what I think happens, and I've done this. I, I've done this before. I think sometimes we communicate legalism versus license. 
walk with me on this. We sometimes say legalism is over here, and that is, you know, one highway going this way. Legalism is, you got to try harder, do better, and be gooder. And the opposite of legalism is another highway going the other way, and that's licentiousness, living all you want to do. And what we tr- tend to say is, but freedom is this path that runs right down the middle. And so you have to be careful, because if you go too far this way, you're going to become a legalist. And then if you go too far this way, you're going to become a licentiousness person. So you've got, your whole life is always like, got to walk the straight and narrow so I don't fall into legalism or fall into license. Am I right? But I think a better way of explaining it is that legalism and license is the same highway, just two lanes, because it's both selfish and it's both slavery. It is for freedom that you've been set free. So don't go into legalism and don't go into licentiousness because that's not freedom. You've been set free to love. Legalism isn't love, and license isn't love. So perhaps a better way would be to say, legalism and license are the same highway, just, different, just two different paths. Freedom is a completely different, different way. It's a different way. Amen? All right. Verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Huh. Paul says, it is faith working through love. Our faith causes us to serve one another through love. Here's your work, love. This is the path of love, not legalism. The path of love is love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, if you can do that, then you've already fulfilled all of the law. It's like Paul saying, those guys want you to be under the law. Those guys want to talk about law. I got your law right here. I'll give you the law. It's called love. Booyah. You want a law? There's your law. Love. And incidentally, if you can do that, you fulfill all the laws. And so those legalists who are trying so hard to fulfill four of them, all I got to do is love somebody and I fulfill all of them. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? This gets spun so many ways in Scripture. I mean, I could take up the rest of the evening showing you different verses. Let me just show you one because I like this one. It's in Romans. Paul says in Romans, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law or completed the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet it, and any other stinking commandment you can add are some, that was italicized mine, are summed up in this one word. Again, it's more than one word, but you get the idea. You shall love your neighbor as yourself because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's from Romans 13. So you wanted work. What is my work? How do I build on the foundation, which is Christ? It's your faith working through love and it's freedom to serve one another through love. You build with love, it will last, right? It's gold, silver, precious stones. The Bible says love endures all things. Love conquers all things. It will last. So here's the thing. Here's the tricky thing. A legalist cannot love because they've not been set free. You cannot love unless you've been set free. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and that gives us ultimate freedom. 
and then we, we're not free to sin, we're free to love. And if, unless you've been set free, you can't love. A free man has nothing to lose and nothing to gain, and he just loves. Jesus was a free man, and Jesus loved, didn't he? Prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, you, right? That's Jesus. So here's what I think is interesting. Legalistic people do not love. They may try to. They may actually even be legalistic about the Bible that says, thou shalt love, <laughs> right? But it's not love. It's just a game that they're playing. It's a, a legalistic person is selfish. He's always looking inside of himself. How am I doing? Am I doing better? Am I doing gooder? He's always looking at himself, and the only time he looks outside of himself is to compare himself to someone else. Well, I'm doing better than him. This is a legalist. Or to judge someone else. Oh, look at them. And then on the slight off chance on a random Tuesday, he might be looking outside of himself to find someone he can serve. But when he serves that person, it's not out of love. It's out of an obligation to check that off his list. And this is a very, very common scenario in the church. And it might be you. It might be me. I'll never forget the day I learned this. Real experience. That legalists don't love. It came to my attention that legalists care more about blue jeans, rock and roll, beer, radar R movies, and tattoos than they do about the greatest commandment, which is to love. They have a high view of Scripture, but a low view of charity. It's the truth. You need to hear this. Legalistic people have a very high view of Scripture, which means they love the Bible, and they talk about the Bible like, my Bible. You ever say that? I got it this morning. I read my Bible. <laughs> it's not yours. Stop it. My Bible. They have a high view of Scripture. They go to Bible studies. They listen to radio programs all the way home from work. They, they, go to, they teach Bible studies. They love to talk about the Word. But they have a very low view of mercy, and justice, and caring, and kindness, and love. And I'm not talking about just my, little, my own little corner experience of my own little world. I'm saying this is a universal truth. When I wrestled with this, I called one of my professors at seminary and said, I don't understand it. He, he said it like this. They have a high view of scripture and a low view of love. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. He says it's common. It's very common in evangelicalism today. Martin Luther says, this is the hallmark of all false teachers that they not only pervert the pure doctrine, but also fail in doing quote-unquote good. They build with wood, hay, and stubble. Oddly enough, the false apostles who were such earnest champions of good works never required the work of charity, such as Christian love and the practical charity of a helpful tongue, hand, and heart. Their only requirement was that circumcision, days, months, years, and times should be observed because they just frankly couldn't think of any other good works. It's the truth. I have never, here's, here's my own little corner of the world experience. I've never been in a church that required love. You want to join our church? Take our class. Tell us, prove to us that you love. Who are you loving? Who are you serving? No one. You cannot join our church until you love. Have you ever been in a church like that? No. 
But I have been in churches that said, have you been divorced? Have you been drunk in the past 90 days? You know what I'm saying? Are you willing to give 10% at least of your money? Raise your hand if you've been in church like that. I, ha- I have. I- I've-, I've known friends who call me up. Should I leave this church? You know what I say? Yes. Yes. But the funny thing is, is that if you are going to be legalistic about something, don't you think it should be the greatest commandment in the Bible? If it's going to be something that we're legalistic about, why aren't we legalistic about that? Look, you, I've been watching you, you're selfish, okay? And the Bible says to love, and you don't. Why don't we have that conversation? Instead, we say, I've been watching you, and you've been wearing short skirts. (laughs) Do you see how flabbergasting it is? Someone give me an amen. Again, this is universal truth. A legalist cannot love, and a licentious sinner can't either. But someone who's been set free from the gospel of Jesus Christ can love. St. Jerome, who wrote in 400 AD, that's 400 years after the death of Christ, probably more like 339 years after the death of Christ, wrote this. You are so taken up by your superstitions and ceremonies that serve no good purpose that you neglect the most important thing, love. We wear our bodies out with watching, fasting, and labor, and yet neglect charity, which is the queen of all good works. This is a universal truth. Legalism sucks. And if you're a legalist, Paul says you're severed from Christ, fallen from grace, there's no love inside of you, you're not free. You want to know what you do with your freedom? (laughs) Build on the foundation of Christ? Love. We need to love. Love one another. Love the world. Love the lost. Just as Jesus loved. Listen to the way Jesus says it. A couple of verses, and then we'll wrap up. Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me pause the, pause the game. How many times does this happen in the Gospels? <laughs> a man walks up to Jesus and says, What must I do so that I can get to heaven? It happens a lot. I know it happens a lot because almost every single time Jesus answers it differently. So it's not the same instance, different gospels. It's different instances with different answers from our Lord. (laughs) Because what? I want to know, what can I do? Give me some work. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret the Bible? Well, he answered, the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do it, and you will live. Huh. Jesus understands, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) that the whole law is fulfilled in just this one thing. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, to be fair, if we go on with this thing, the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? And then he tells a parable about the Good Samaritan, and you probably know that story. We're not going to go to all that right now, but that's what happens. This guy's still trying to figure out, what must I do? Who is my neighbor? (laughs) He missed it, right? It's the path of love, not legalism. You can't love if you're looking for, tell me who, and I can check them off my list. Mark 12, different instance. One of the scribes came up. This blows my mind. I just learned this last night. One of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with another guy. And seeing that Jesus was answering them well, he asked him, okay, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, 
You see these guys, he's always wanting to know about the law. What commandment? What commandment? What commandment? The most important is this, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes on, there is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus says, and he saw that he answered wisely, said to him, listen to this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Blows my mind there. The scribe says, what do you think, Jesus? What's the most important? Love God, love your neighbor. The Pharisee says, yeah, you're right. That's good. That's a good answer. I think the whole law is summed up in those two. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You get it. You get that the way of love is better than the way of law. Here, I'm going to quote another dude you probably didn't think I was going to quote. His name is James. You didn't think I was going to quote it, right? Because we're talking about no works, you know, works, you know. <laughs> Listen to James, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Uh-oh. Sounds like he's contradicting Paul, doesn't it? Come on, let's just be honest. It does. It sounds like he's contradicting Paul. What good is it if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? In other words, it's not faith alone. It's faith plus something. Works. So then he goes on to say, can that faith save him? Okay, now he's going to give an illustration. Don't read ahead. What do you think he's going to say next? What kind of works do you need to show that you have faith? Try harder, do better, be gooder, get up at six in the morning, do your quiet time with a journal, and only listen to Christian music and not country music, right? Then you've got works. You think that's what he's going to say, right? Here's your works. Listen to what he says. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith working in love. That's the fruit that, the, that's the fruit that James wants to see. He's not saying you have to have works. He's saying that your faith will produce love. And the kind of love that doesn't say, oh, I'll pray for you. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Sounds like a legalistic person. Go and peace, be filled and warm. I will pray for thee, brother. Am I right? James is saying, no, it's the kind of faith that works inside of us to truly love. We've been set free to love. And when we love, we care for these folks. We love these folks. True love. Do you get this? This is... This is radical stuff. This is legalism is bad. Love, well, you can't argue with it. Even the Beatles liked love. I like the way Luther says it. If you're so anxious to do good works, I will tell you in one word, I think he's making fun of Paul there because it's not one word, <laughs> how you can fulfill all the laws. 
by love serve one another. You're anxious for good works? I'll give you one. That's it. And it will fulfill all of them. By love serve one another. You will never lack people to whom you may do good because the world is full of people who need your help. You want works? I got your works. Love somebody. And the world is full of people who need it. Law will burn. Wood, hay, stubble. Love, gold, silver, sapphire. Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. That gets destroyed. Store up your treasures. How do you, what did he mean when he said that? Love. So I'll wrap it up with this, reminding us. Jesus came on this earth to do work. And he says, my work is finished. Everything that you called me to do, Father, of all my work, it is accomplished. What he did was he died, paid for our sin, went to the grave, paid our death, rose from the grave, conquered death, and set us free from sin, death, law, it all. Set us free from everything. And the only thing that we do, not because law you have to, but response because he set me free, is love. It is a command, actually. I should, I should be clear about this. Jesus commanded us, love one another, right? There was a time in Jesus' life, near the end of his life, where he gathered with his disciples for his last communion. And he gathered with his disciples, and the Bible says before he broke the bread and before he passed around the cup, he took off his clothes. And he put a towel around him, and he washed all of his disciples' feet. And then afterwards, he says, what I've done to you you must do to one another. And then he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. You want a law? Here's your law. It's simple. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Not, not even anymore, love your neighbor as yourself. He kicked it up a little, didn't he? Love one another as I love you. You also are to love one another. And by this, I love this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we should be legalistic about anything, it should be love. Because Jesus said, that's how they'll know you're a Christian. They will know we are Christians by our love, not by our picket signs, not by our bumper stickers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they will know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray.